Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Get a quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Hey there, podcast listeners, and happy Super Bowl weekend. We thought it might be nice to replay for you with some slight updates. An episode we first put out last year called An Egghead's Guide to the Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday has become a sort of secular holiday in the United States, with more than 110 million people watching the game on TV. As with any audience that large, there's bound to be a lot of variance among the viewers. You've got hardcore fans, especially of the teams involved. This year, the New England Patriots, again, and the Philadelphia Eagles. You've got the people who like football well enough, but aren't fanatics. And then there's a large swath of people who probably don't watch much football at all. They're primarily there for the party, the chicken wings, or maybe they're new to this country, or at least new to the sport, and have no clue as to how American football even works. So we thought, what can we here at Freakonomics Radio do to make this secular holiday a little more enjoyable for everyone? That's why we assembled a few very bright people, including a current NFL player, two former players, one of them a two-time Super Bowl champion, the other mathematician, and because this is Freakonomics Radio, a PhD economist. We'll talk to you right after this. From WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. For our Egghead's Guide to the Super Bowl, we'll start with our resident Egghead, Steve Levitt. Hey, Dubner. Levitt is my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. So, Levitt, I've known you a long time, and I know you've written a lot of papers on on different sports and elements of sports, sumo wrestling and soccer and sports gambling, for instance. But honestly, if someone were to ask me, hey, is Steve Levitt a sports fan? I don't really know. I don't think you actually enjoy watching just to watch or you don't really enjoy rooting for a team or anything plebeian like that, do you? Well, the sad part is I used to. I grew up as a a huge sports fan, and then uh, before I wrote 
papers on sports gambling. I did a lot of sports gambling myself. And and although sports gambling was really, really fun, the problem with it was that once you start betting on sports, it became, at least for me, I think for most people, hard to maintain any kind of loyalty to the home teams like the Minnesota Vikings or the Twins that I grew up loving so much. And and even though I no longer gamble on sports, I've never been able to get back my mojo when it comes to really caring about a team just for the sake of caring about a team. So considering that you don't love watching the game just for the sake of the game or the competition or your team, whatever, are there ways that you enjoy it anyway? Are there things that you look for, whether they're kind of brain puzzles or kind of bets against yourself to see, you know, if X happens, will Y happen and so on? Well, I don't do anything as intellectual as as all that, but I do watch the Super Bowl. And there are uh, at least two things about the Super Bowl, which at least for me, uh, give me a source of entertainment when I watch the games. Now, the first of these, of course, is the ads. And there's really nothing else in the world like Super Bowl ads. And I don't know why I love the ads so much. It's partly because I know so much effort has gone into them, um, partly because there's so much creativity, and partly because I'm, I always do focus on the intellectual side of wondering whether the ads will actually work. And it's, it's an interesting problem. It, it, so in general, it's very hard to figure out whether advertising works. In particular, it's extremely difficult to know whether something like a Super Bowl ad actually works. And um, in a time where now this year, I think the uh, 30-second Super Bowl spot will be selling for $5.5 million, uh, it's a good question to ask whether or not, indeed, the investment that the firms are making in these ads pay off. And so as I watch the ads, I'm always uh, intrigued to think about whether or not there's any conceivable way that the ad that you're seeing might lead to a positive ROI for the advertisers. So that's one thing to think about during the Super Bowl, especially if you're not that interested in the football. But what about the football? Let's introduce the rest of our egghead panel, all of whom are quite qualified on that front. My name is John Urschel. I'm a uh, PhD student at MIT in applied mathematics. Eric Winston. I am a right tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals, and I am the president of the NFLPA. Justin Tuck, former NFL defensive end, now Warden MBA student. So we've got Eric Winston, the president of the NFL Players Union, Justin Tuck, a Wharton MBA candidate with two Super Bowl rings for the New York Giants, and John Urschel, a former Baltimore Ravens lineman who started on his PhD while playing in the NFL. He retired last summer after a study came out linking football to brain damage. We talked to him about that in our episode called How Much Brain Damage Do I Have? Surely these guys' recommendation for what to watch for isn't the same as Steve Levitt's. And yet, it is. It does not matter how much or how little football you know, you will enjoy the commercials, I can assure you. When they go to commercial break, this is not your time to get up and go to the bathroom and like go get some like chips and dip. Watch the uh, halftime show. It's great. The halftime show's phenomenal. The, the commercials are great, too. The commercials are really funny. I'll tell them to pay attention to the commercials. The commercials are really good. Okay, so watch the commercials. As for the game itself, we'll start with what to watch for if you know absolutely nothing about the sport of American football. I'd say it's uh, 
Very much similar to rugby. John Urschel, the mathematician. Except uh, some main differences are when you have the ball and you get tackled, they actually stop play. So rugby, you know, it's continuous play. They actually stop play, and it's a lot of set pieces, which a lot of people who don't watch football and a lot of international people, they think it's kind of strange. They think it's kind of slow. But I think the thing to watch for and appreciate is the fact that because football is broken up into these bits of like seven, eight-second plays with these breaks in between, in those seven and eight seconds, you get to see so much athleticism and just so much physical talent that it makes it a much higher quality seven or eight seconds broken up than if you watch an entire rugby game throughout or a entire soccer game throughout. I can tell you that on every single play, if you watch it closely and you really pay attention to the players, you will see amazing feats of athleticism every single play, which I can't say for every single minute of, say, West Ham versus Arsenal. I would say um, if you don't know anything about the game, right, you want to probably watch the person with the ball. It's Justin Tuck, who played nine seasons with the New York Giants and two with the Oakland Raiders. Like, obviously, the, you know, the center has the ball first. He's going to snap it to the quarterback in some capacity, whether he's in shotgun or, in, or or under center. And then from there, if it's a run play, the, you know, the quarterback's going to hand the ball to the running back. Uh, if it's a pass play, the quarterback's going to drop back and figure out what is the best option for him to disperse the ball to another player. If you actually want to watch the game, Step one, don't bother a guy that's really watching the game to explain it to you. That's Eric Winston. Like, that is the worst. Like, we can do that at halftime. We can just right in the middle of the series. Don't start pulling, hey, what's that mean or whatever. So that's step one. If you're a, a novice or you're, you don't really care about the game. I've often been told and read that offensive linemen are, on average, the smartest guys on any football team. Is that true? And if so, why is that true? Of course. Without a doubt, we're the smartest guys on the field. I like to think we're pretty bright. John Urschel was also an offensive lineman. I mean, uh, I hate to judge people just based off their position group, but I like to think we've got some pretty smart guys. Certainly, I would agree with that in that, uh, you know, being an offensive lineman requires more kind of mental function in a given game than, say, playing as a defensive lineman or a linebacker or a defensive back. And that's certainly true. You have to know your assignments, know all these plays, be able to see what the defense is doing, make adjustments, and then to be all on the same page, all five of you. Because all it takes is one of you to mess up, and the whole play is just ruined. As opposed to on defense, all it takes is one of you to make an amazing play and the whole play is just brilliant. I asked Justin Tuck the same question, if offensive linemen are, on average, the smartest group on the field. He, remember, was a defensive lineman. I would say, uh, as a group, they probably are. Uh, really? I can't believe you're giving it to them, just like wait, that. Wait, wait, you didn't let me finish. You didn't let me finish. As individuals, though, you know, I would probably say all of the old linemen have to be, you know, C-caliber uh, of smarts. Where you get guys that are, the center position probably has to be B, B, you know, B plus type. Quarterback has to be probably A. But you know, I, obviously they're gonna say it. I, I heard you talk to two pretty good ones, so yeah, I, I get that to them. For the whole, I get that to them. So if you are a football novice and you're watching the Super Bowl, now you've got a few things in your pocket. Watch the ads, of course. 
during the game, watch the ball, but also take advantage of the stop and start nature of the game, that seven or eight seconds of amazing athleticism. And finally, if you're looking to impress someone, tell them how the offensive linemen, the huge gentlemen up front who protect the quarterback and clear the path for runners, how they are probably the brightest guys on the field. All right, then. What if you already know a fair amount about the game? We asked our eggheads what you should watch for. John Urschel first. I think one thing that's always interesting to think about that I think the regular fan who watches a lot of football doesn't kind of put in their head is think about the kind of chess match going on here. Think about the actual strategies that the team have and try to think about what wins and loses a football game because you're a football fan. You watch all these games. You root for your team. You know, you're a diehard fan. But really, what are the fundamental things that win and lose football games and what are the critical moments and how do you know them when they get there? The sort of awareness of, well, how do these wins and losses really, really come about? To that end, Justin Tuck suggests you look for patterns in how a given team handles different situations as the game goes on. You can figure out, you know, depending on what a team had done earlier in the game, why they would come back to do something, you know, later in the game that way. I would say look at personnel, like whether, you know, normally in third and ten, you know, you're going to be more of a, a pass and attack type of offense. And obviously on defense, they're going to be more in the nickel packages and, and trying to stop the pass. Eric Winston has some simple but useful advice for a fairly knowledgeable football fan. Look who affects the middle of the pocket. Meaning? Meaning that what see what team can make the quarterback move horizontally. This year, that means the Eagles quarterback Nick Foles, who's playing in his first Super Bowl, and the Patriots' Tom Brady, playing in his record-setting eighth Super Bowl. Tom does a phenomenal job of what they call stepping up in the pocket, meaning that once the ball has been snapped and the quarterback's looking downfield, he moves upward in the pocket, usually right to the direction of where the ball was snapped by the center. He steps up and he's looking to make a good throw because it's easier to make a throw when your shoulders are perpendicular to the line of scrimmage and you can follow through. So if you're affecting that ability, especially for Tom, in making him move sideways, he doesn't throw the ball as well. If this actual football stuff doesn't move you, Eric Winston has something else to think about, something that comes from playing in the NFL for 12 seasons and not making it to the Super Bowl. So this is a little factoid that I'm sure a lot of your uh, your audience and, and might be interested in. Most players, even though they have the option of buying two tickets and going to the game, won't go. The active players won't go. There's There's very few players that will go. The old adage is you don't go to the Super Bowl until you play in it. And so that's... That's always been most guys' thing. They'll go to some of the parties and, and do some media engagements and talk to people and meet people, but they, they leave either Sunday morning to get home so they can watch the Super Bowl or they leave Saturday. Just because it's too hard to sit there and watch it in person? Well, it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's just, it's like a superstition almost. You, just don't, you don't go to the Super Bowl until you've, until you've played in it. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, our eggheads tell you what to watch for if you're really into football or want to seem as if you are. And if you're the kind of person who hears the word football and thinks of soccer, well, we've got that in our Freakonomics Radio archive as well at Freakonomics.com, on iTunes, and elsewhere. 
I would suggest you start with the episode called Why America Doesn't Love Soccer Yet. There's also one called The Longest Long Shot. That's about Leicester City Football Club's amazing Premier League title. Both episodes happen to include my footy-loving teenager, Solomon. And if you're really into it, he and I do a whole separate footy podcast called Footy for Two. Check it out, and Freakonomics Radio will be right back. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by True Green. True Green takes care of all the hard work it takes to get a great lawn so you can take care of everything else in your busy schedule. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more, so you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you know you're in good hands because they are the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. That's T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. How do you watch the Super Bowl? Depends. Depends on how much you care about the teams. Depends who you're watching with. Depends on your level of interest and knowledge. In this Egghead's Guide to the Super Bowl, we've been asking NFL players past and present, Justin Tuck, John Urschel, and Eric Winston, things that anyone can look for. We've already covered the average football fan and the total newbie. But what should someone who really knows the game watch for? 
I look at formation. Are they doing a lot of two tight end sets? Are they completely open sets? And what are they? Are they under center quite a bit? I still believe, and they've gone away from this, but I still believe the more you're under center, the more deception you have in your offense. You're able to play action pass more. You're able to uh, do different running plays. I think out of shotgun, you are limited to me in some of the things that you can do. And so I look at that. I'm looking at the defense. Obviously, are they moving around? Are they stagnant? Are they blitzing a lot? And then once the ball is snapped, I'm watching the front seven, meaning the offensive linemen plus the down linemen and linebackers. And how are they? Who's winning there? Who's not winning? And here's advice from John Urschel. I would tell them, pick any position that they find interesting, whether it's cornerback or whether it's a certain wide receiver. And you'll really notice more about the game if you just pick a position or even pick a player and just watch that player the entire game. Just to see what that person's game is like the whole game. Because very often, you know, football fans, even hardcore football fans who know a lot, they're always watching the action. And they kind of miss out on the idea of, well, what's this player's day actually like? So if you look at a wide receiver— What is that wide receiver doing on pass plays where the main route combination is not to his side? What is he doing when it's a run play? Is he running them off? Is he just jogging? Is he talking to the cornerback? What, you know, what is going on there? Offensive linemen are in the unfortunate position of when on the rare occasion that they make a mistake and are called for holding or Mm -hmm. motion or something, that is often one of the only times that their name is mentioned on the broadcast and the camera goes to them and so on. It's just an unfortunate situation. Well, no offensive lineman will ever admit this, but since we're talking, you know, mathematically, holding happens a lot during a game, but only gets called. And when it gets called, it's always kind of a little questionable. Should it have been called? Shouldn't it have been called? So there's this, always this risk-reward as an offensive lineman for how long you hold for, how hard you hold in terms of how often you get holding calls during the season as opposed to how much this helps you maintain your block. Do you find that an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman is more prone to fatigue? Defensive linemen certainly because they have to run to the football. So an offensive lineman's job is I'm blocking this man and I'm stopping him from either getting to the quarterback or getting to the running back. And while his job is to get to the quarterback or the running back, so, you know, I'm blocking him, and suppose the running back runs all the way to the other side, eventually he's going to get off my block. He's never going to get to the guy, but he still has to start running in that direction. If the quarterback throws the ball and a receiver catches it, well, I'm not much good downfield. I'm running downfield, but the defensive lineman has to sprint downfield to try to help to make the tackle. So they get tired much more quickly than we do. Also, I think there's some fatigue involved in not knowing what's happening. So they have to always be going, always be you know aggressive, whereas I know the play, I know what's going to happen. They have to figure this out. That's such an interesting point because there's a lot mm-hmm. of social science research, psychology particularly, that shows that uncertainty is exhausting and people make really poor decisions under uncertainty. So you're saying that even for the defensive, or for anyone on the defense, I guess, you, you've got that doubt all game long. Yes, mm. you've got this constant uncertainty. If you ever want to watch smart football players, especially on the defensive side, just pick a defensive end. And that again is Justin Tuck, an all-pro defensive end who spent nine seasons with the New York football giants 
including their two Super Bowl wins over the New England Patriots. And most of the time, the defensive ends that are really, really late getting in their stance, they've outplays that they know are not coming. I used to do it. I, I learned it from Strahan and O.C. when I was playing with those guys. He's talking about Michael Strahan and O.C. Uminiora. But I would always get in my stance last second because I wanted to see what the offense was doing. I wanted to see, do they have trips into the boundary? Uh, is the is the running back eight yards deep and, or versus six or seven yards deep? Uh, quarterback on the shotgun. What is what is the hand of the offensive lineman that I'm going against? What is that telling me? How is his foot positioned? Is he blocking down? Is he blocking towards me? Is, is he is his weight back because he wants to kick out because of the pass? Uh, things like that is is what experts look at. You know, are they are they going in motion to see if we're playing man? Um, th- is this a situation where we might get hard counting? Is it third and short? Should I watch the ball more more intently than I would if it was third and long? But the better you get at it, the quicker it goes. So, you know, you you normally have, once they come to the line of scrimmage, you probably have five seconds at the max, depending on the type of offense you're playing against. And you have to kind of, you know, decipher all this information like that and be able to go and play. And I think the teams that do that the best are the teams that, you know, play really, really well. When you say you want to go into your stance late, is it because you want to be upright to see better longer or you want to adjust your stance? Both. Okay. Both. So you're going to, okay. So the more information you have, the more you know what stance you want. Exactly. And, and you know, I always told people, I was, like, for example, like we used to have defenses that was kind of like a check with me defense where we would change defenses as the offense changed or so on and so forth. So as a D lineman, I had to listen to guys behind me. And I would tell my linebackers, don't tell me anything once my hand's in the ground, because once my hand's in the ground, my mind has went completely black, and it's more figuring out or or focusing on how I beat this guy right in front of me. You know, when I put my hand in the ground, it could be 80,000 people in the stands. I don't hear any of them. So that's one of the reasons why I stood up longer, because, you know, we would be checking defenses and going from blisses to, you know, cover twos or whatever it may be. Um, And you have to hear that stuff and then adjust to it. And... So me standing up or me not putting my hand in the dirt as long as possible gave me a better chance of being able to adjust. How um, valuable would you say, and I would ask you to kind of put on your NBA hat here, because now you're thinking about risk-reward and all that. How valuable in, let's say, in one given football game is the element of surprise? So, you know, it's like a game theory question. Theoretically, if I, the offense, can surprise you every time, that, or at least randomize, and I'm ahead of the game. On the other hand, by insisting on wanting to surprise you, I might do things that are not playing to my strength. So I'm mm. curious as a defensive player what you thought of, not necessarily trick plays, but you know how much the offense tried to fool you. You know, I think it's, it's a fine line between trying to fool players because you got to think, as a defensive player, most of my time isn't spent on the actual field running around trying to stop offenses. Most of my time is is spent watching film trying to figure out you know what their tendencies are so coming to a football game I have a a pretty good sense of what they like to do in certain situations which allows me to play really really fast but on the other hand they know that you know that so that's where the game theory happens right so they know that you Justin Tuck have watched 12 hours of what you know x team is going to do on third and long and so they know that you know that then they might want to you know outsmart you yeah they might but they also are doing something now that they're probably not as good at as well so i think it's pretty much you know a similar outcome um you might get me once on that trick play but the next time you try you might lose a you know 15 yards and and set your you set your offense back 
But I also say this. I'm more from the old school where I believe that regardless, if they know what I'm doing or not, if I execute what I'm doing better than than him, then I'm going to win. So I've always, I've always been in the mindset, I don't care if they know what I'm doing. As long as I'm doing it at 100% of my capacity, then I'm fine with that. In terms of outfoxing the other team, or at least trying to optimize your play calling, Steve Lebe and a colleague wrote a paper on this very topic. It's called Professionals Do Not Play Minimax, and it analyzed about 125,000 NFL play choices. We found that teams systematically ran the ball too much, that, that given the outcomes of plays, it looked like if teams were to pass a lot more than they did, things would actually get better. And uh, I can't say that it is actually causal. I, I doubt that the NFL football teams read our paper and dramatically changed the way they did things. But I am happy to report that in the years since we wrote that paper, uh, there was a dramatic increase in the share of plays from scrimmage that became passes versus runs when that trend hadn't been there at all prior to our writing. So so maybe I should take credit for it, even though um, it's almost certainly impossible that uh, I have made NFL football more efficient. Steve Levitt has one more piece of advice for anyone watching the Super Bowl, regardless of interest level. The beauty of the Super Bowl is that you can virtually gamble on any aspect of it. So not just the final score, or who will win, but even who will win the opening coin toss. And I remember one year you could actually bet on whether Jay-Z would also appear along with Beyonce in the, in the halftime uh, show. And so if you want to have some fun, you can go to a sports book. You can look at you know the, the literally hundreds of different betting options that are there. And without even the trouble of going and, and making an account at the sports book, I would suggest you find a friend and you uh, you divvy up the bets and you bet on you know fifty or seventy five things and you and you keep track of uh, who wins what and it can keep you busy for the entire game. And if it's the sort of thing where you don't get any pleasure out of taking money from your friends, then I would suggest that you find one of your enemies and you actually divvy up all the bets with one of your enemies so that if you if you actually happen to win a lot, you can take great joy in that in that outcome. Coming up on our next regularly scheduled Freakonomics Radio episode, we continue our Secret Life of a CEO series. We've got interviews with the CEOs of companies like Facebook, PepsiCo, and Microsoft. And we look at all the trouble a CEO gets to deal with, from consumer rebellions... There were maybe fifteen or 20,000 people who were very upset. ...to changes in the business climate. We tried too hard to keep our old model alive. And huge changes in technology. And then iTunes came along and the internet came along. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Shelley Lewis. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Stephanie Tam, Max Miller, Vera Carruthers, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com where you can stream or download every episode we have ever made. You can also read the transcript where you'll find links to the underlying research. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.